last week of our series in James, and we're going to end with probably one of the most important topics that we could discuss, that we could grow in, that we could be made aware of. And uh, my prayer and hope is that this series has really challenged you, awakened your faith, reminded you of the importance of paying attention to your walk with Jesus. Again, the series title has been Faith That's Not Dead. And uh, we know that uh, we need a faith that's alive and active and growing. This is how we're going to be able to live the life God calls us to. This week, we end this series with this big idea. Faith that's not dead practices earnest, powerful prayer. So how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Honestly, how are you doing in your conversation, your interaction with God on a regular basis? Do you feel like you're praying without ceasing? Kind of that uh, just it's flowing and you feel like God's right there and you're able to talk to him all the time throughout your day. You're really connected. Or do you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, (laughs) bouncing back? Not sure if God really is hearing what you're saying. You don't feel like your prayers are getting through. Uh, The truth is that our faith goes oftentimes the way our prayer life goes. And if we don't feel like we're getting through, if we don't feel like we're connecting, then our faith has this tendency to wither and fade away. Are you praying in power and in faith? There was a widow woman who struggled to get the bills paid every month. She had a part-time job, but it was hard. The bills were too much, more than the income, and she watched as her food pantry just slowly dwindled down. She couldn't refill it. And so uh, one morning, the dreadful day came, she opened the food pantry and it was empty. And so as she left for work, she stopped on the steps uh, as she left the house and she just prayed out loud. She said, God, I know you're there. I know you love me. I know you can do anything. I need some help. I need you to fill my food pantry. Well, when she came home from work, she was amazed to see her front steps covered with bags and boxes of food, literally enough to fill her food pantry. And she was ecstatic. She said, thank you, God. God, you did it. You did it. You did it. Thank you. You answered my prayers and you provided all this food. Praise Jesus. Well, at that moment, there was a man that jumped out of the bushes and he said, aha, He said, I want you to know that I'm your neighbor and I heard you pray this morning on your way to work. And so I went to the grocery store and I used my own money and I bought all this food and I brought it and put it on your steps. And she said, God did it, God did it, God did it. Thank you, Jesus. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And I did this to prove to you there is no God. You weak-minded, simple woman, I'm the one who bought the groceries. Don't you see, I'm the reason that you have the food. She said, God did it, God did it, God did it. And he used the devil to get it done. (laughs) How is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Are you praying in faith, in power? Oftentimes our prayers get a little weak, we're a little uncertain if God can really handle the problems that we're facing. Can he really overcome the obstacles? Who is it that we're praying to? The reality is that prayer is just talking to God. It is the way in which we have a relationship with him. And the truth is that 
again, we have the privilege and the opportunity to talk to the living God, the one who created all things, the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God. And yet, too often, we lose sight of that. We start to think that we're not sure who it is we're praying to, and we're not sure if he's really aware and he's really able. Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us about Jesus and his role in our prayers. You know, because of what Jesus has done, he has done the work of dying for our sins, of paying that price, that sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus now fills a role as our high priest. And the high priest in the Old Testament was able to go to God for the people. It was only the priest who could enter the Holy of Holies, the place where God, his presence dwelt. And he could intercede for the people. And the writer of Hebrews says, our great high priest is now Jesus. He's the one who intercedes for us. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, So then, since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. We're to come boldly into the presence of God Almighty. And you and I, if you know yourself, if you're honest about who you are, you have no right. You have no, you have no credibility to come into the presence of a holy God. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, but we can. And you shouldn't come with hesitancy and fear. You can come with boldness if you put your trust in Jesus, in the Savior. If your faith is in him, if your trust is in him, if you've been saved by him, then you can come boldly to the throne of grace. Well, we still might have questions about prayer. When do I pray? How do I pray? What is this supposed to look like? And James ends this book with some practical instructions on prayer. He gives us some teaching as to the kinds of prayers we should pray, when we should pray, and even some help in prayer uh, and in praying that comes through our participation in the body of Christ, the church. And so let's dig into this last few verses of James chapter 5 and of the book itself. The first time that James teaches us that we should pray is when we're suffering. And so we should pray, or you should pray, when you're suffering hardships. Look at verse 13, the first part of the verse. It says this, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. <laughs> are you suffering hardships? What do you do when hardships come? What's your first reaction, your first response? Um, probably too often, if I were to be honest, mine is to start whining to the closest person, which too often is my wife. <laughs> I don't like hardships. I don't like suffering. And yet James says our first reaction, our first response should be to talk to God. Are you suffering right now? Are you going through some hardships? Physical issues, financial pressure, 
conflict in your marriage, with your kids, at work, with a neighbor, a difficulty? Are you being blamed for something? Is your credibility been tested? Are you under suspicion, question? Are you being hated on because you love and follow Jesus? Second Corinthians, Paul teaches the church there in Corinth about sufferings, and he says that participation in suffering has allowed him to experience the comfort of God. That he has experienced God in a different way, in a more powerful way because of his suffering. He's like, I've gone through sufferings and that has taught me and, and helped me to experience the comfort that God gives in troubles. See, as you go through suffering, part of the purpose is that you would experience the power of God in a personal way that you will not experience any other way. That's the purpose in part of suffering and hardships. If we didn't navigate those things, the reality is as human beings, we would not experience the presence of God and the power of God's comfort. And so he says, Paul says, this is part of the reason I've experienced suffering. I've learned the comfort of God and now I can help others experience that same comfort. You know how it is when you go through something, you struggle through a difficulty, you suffer through a hardship. And you make it through and God brings you through and he teaches you some things and you learn about him in a different way and all of a sudden, somehow, miraculously, God puts somebody in your life that's headed into the same hardship. And all of a sudden, you're able to help them because of what you've been through. Helen Keller, if you remember that young lady who was born deaf and blind and mute, had a tremendous struggle in her life. She said this about suffering. Although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of overcoming it. (laughs) And we can participate in helping others, in alleviating or encouraging others in their suffering because of what we have been through. Job, as you'll recall, through his suffering, before he went through his uh, trials, he knew about God. He was God-fearing. He knew that there was a God up there and he respected him and he honored him. But only through the sufferings that he went through did he get to know God personally. As you'll remember, God came to him and met with him. And Job came out the other end of those sufferings knowing God. This is part of the purpose and the role that suffering plays in our lives. Oswald Chambers, great man of the faith who lived years ago, He said this about suffering. He said, suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, which is the repentant, right? And of the son of God. Each one ends on the cross. The bad thief was crucified. The penitent or repentant thief was crucified. And the son of God was crucified. By these signs, we know the widespread heritage of suffering. We will suffer in this life. It's not that positive, encouraging message that we want to hear always, but it's the truth. And we'd be a lot better off as followers of Jesus to learn to navigate suffering, to learn how to do it so that we grow through it and we're not weakened by it. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he talked about suffering in this way. He said, I want to know Christ and, the experience, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. 
I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Well, if you're going to experience the power of the resurrection, you got to die. <laughs> Paul said, I know. I want to go into that. I want to navigate into that. One way or the other, if, it, if it's he returns before I die, then I want to know what it means to suffer physically as though I had died. Or if I die literally, but either way, I want to know that power. I want to experience that power because it changed his life. And then I also think in suffering, and as we think of suffering, let's remember those who went before us, those saints who followed Jesus, who built the church, who remained faithful in the midst of persecution. Um, the church has had in ancient times councils where leaders would gather together to make decisions. One of the earliest councils was called the Nicene Council. We have the Nicene Creed that came out of that council. An affirmation of the truth of the gospel, right? Well, one fact about that particular council, which happened in the 400s AD, there were 318 delegates who attended. Again, spiritual leaders, pastors from around the world. Of those delegates who attended, 318, fewer than 12, fewer than a dozen, had not lost an eye, lost a hand, or were crippled because of persecution for their faith. Let's learn to suffer well, to struggle well through difficult times. Prayer is our avenue to the power of God in the midst of struggle. Well, James goes on to a more uplifting topic. The next thing he covers is happiness. He says, you should pray when you're happy. Look at the second Half of verse 13, he asked the question, are any of you happy? You should sing praises. I used to love watching Duck Dynasty, um, the Robertson clan, you know, the big beards. <clears throat> I tried to grow one of those for a while, but gave up on it. But here's the thing, there was Cy Robertson. I've got a little stuffed doll of him in my office somebody gave me. But one of his little sayings was, happy, happy, happy. Right? How you doing at being happy? Are you happy? What do you do when you're happy? The Bible teaches us that happiness comes as a result of obedience to God. In our culture, we, a lot of us um, substitute good feelings, feeling good when we do something for happiness. We think that's happiness. Can I just tell you that's a horrible counterfeit of true happiness. True happiness isn't just a feeling. It's a, it's a result of doing the right thing of living the right way, of knowing that we, we did things according to a standard that we should be living by, that when we accomplish something, when something good happens, it's as a result of our obedience, of our character. True happiness only comes through that avenue. When God does bring joy to your heart, when you do experience happiness on occasion, it can seem elusive and hard to, uh, and unpredictable sometimes, but do you have a song in your heart? Do you have a song of thanksgiving to God? I know not all of us are singers. My mom's kind of a singer. She always had a song going. Always being thankful for something. Sometimes I appreciated that. Sometimes I didn't. What do you do? Do you have a tendency to praise God? 
Do you count your blessings? Are you aware of the answers to your prayers? Do you acknowledge those things to God? You say, thank you, God. You know, it's been said that a thankful heart is a happy heart. Discontentment plagues our culture because constantly we're bombarded with things that we need if we're going to be happy. New shiny stuff. I got to have that new thing. I got to have that new thing. And we're, we're marketed to think that our happiness will come only through those things. But the truth is contentment brings about joy. So here's some rules, 10 rules for a happier life that you might want to try out. First one is to give something away with no strings attached. Second one, do a kindness for someone and forget about it. Don't require reciprocation. Number three, spend a few minutes with an older person. Their experience is a priceless guidance to our lives. Number four, look intently into the face of a baby and marvel at the wonder of God's creation. Number five, laugh often. You know, laughter is the lubricant of life. Number six, give thanks. A thousand times a day is not too much. Third, uh, seven, pray or you'll lose your way. Eight, work with vim and vigor, as my grandparents used to say. Number nine, plan as though you'll live forever because you will. And live as though you'll die tomorrow because on some tomorrow you will. James moves on to the next topic. Again, this is a a topic that involves a struggle. And certainly we think of prayer most often when we're struggling. But the next situation that we should pray in, James teaches us, is to pray when you're sick. Look at verses 14 and 15 of James chapter 5. Are any of you sick? James asks. You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Uh, An encouraging passage. I know as a church, we practice this. Um, We pray over a lot of people as elders who are facing illness or facing sickness. We certainly have seen people get better um, as a result of that prayer. We do anoint them with oil and, uh, and we pray over them in the name of the Lord. We pray for healing and faith. We have a leadership team who believes that God can heal. And we've seen it happen as a result of those prayers I believe that every healing that people experience is a result in some way of God's activity in, 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 in their sickness and in their illness. But we certainly have seen times where that didn't happen. And a lot of people read this verse and say, now, wait a minute. I've seen this happen and healing didn't occur. What does that mean? And so I think it's important to deal with that. Some of us have that kind of mind and we tend to think that way. It's true. What happens when healing doesn't occur? Well, first of all, this passage um, is a principle of faith, a principle of behavior and practice that God's church should do. It ensures that those who are struggling and sick that cannot always make it to church, that we're still aware of them and participating in them and keeping them connected to the church. 
It is also true that this prayer in faith by the elders will heal the sick. And that does happen. But when it doesn't, and certainly we see in the Bible that every time a person's sick and they pray about it, they don't get healed. That's reality. The apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. This was a physical ailment. He prayed that it would go away three times. Now, if the apostle Paul can't pray for healing, he had the power, right? But God didn't take it away. And he taught him there was a purpose in that struggle. And so sometimes our physical ailments, our sickness, our illness, our infirmity serves a purpose and God chooses to allow it to continue. He doesn't bring about physical healing in that moment or sometimes ever. This does not mean that God isn't at work. It doesn't mean that he um, is forgotten about us or he's not keeping a promise. It's simply that we understand God's will and that God's choices in doing things are simply that, they're his. We know he has the power, but we also remain faithful in trusting him and seeing the purpose in our lives, no matter what it is we're struggling with. If this was a promise that God was going to do it every time we followed this procedure, then we'd have saints still alive today that were alive in Jesus' time, right? But we don't. So maybe our understanding of this passage needs to have some humility and also reminded, uh, remind us at times that God's not a genie, that there's these formulas, these incantations that we follow, and then poof, God does a magic thing. No, that's not how it works. We serve a God who is all-powerful, he's personal, and he has a purpose in what he does. We trust him no matter what. We know that he is the provision, he is the one who heals, and we've all probably seen that happen. And yet there's times when it doesn't happen, we still practice this. You know, at the end of the verse, James says that um, this prayer, if a person has been walking in sin or living in sin, that it will also provide forgiveness for them, a covering for that. And a lot of times I know people will connect sickness and sin. Am I sick because I've sinned? Is that the reason? James does not connect those two, but he also includes both in this prayer, in this blessing, in this covering by the leaders of the church. You know, the church matters to God. He created it for a purpose and the purpose was our participation, okay? It is not so that we can just um, sort of be fringe watchers on, right? And then kind of have a light uh, interaction with the church. But the church is to be a place where we immerse ourselves. We are a part of it because through it comes the blessings of God. This prayer of healing is one of them. And as I've said, God heals through this process. I feel like... As a pastor, I watch too many people not step in to the church, connect, right, in a meaningful way such that if something happened, the leaders of the church even know. I think we see so many answers to prayer in the Bible come through the body of Christ, through relationships with other believers. And we're going to see more of that in this passage as James teaches us. The next time that we should pray, James tells us, is when you are caught in the trap of sin. Look at James chapter 5, verse 16. He says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Um, 
a lot of times, people who put their trust in Christ are suffering in their spiritual life. They have the weight of anxiety, depression, discouragement. They don't have and are not walking in healing and power. There's a struggle. They're wondering, where is this power that's supposed to come into my life? Where's this victory that I'm supposed to experience? And that oftentimes we realize that there's sin and a pattern of sin that an individual is participating in. I've watched over the years, seems like in recent years, an increase in anxiety and depression and fear-based emotional struggles, psychological struggles in our culture. A lot of times it's with younger people, but it really has spread to everyone. Why is this? What is the cause? Well, things are complicated. I'm not pretending there's one answer, but I do know this, that it is through the gateway of the screens that we carry around that a lot of sin and wickedness enters our lives and we're exposed to it on a constant basis. And I just want to encourage you and challenge you a little bit that without metering that exposure, you're going to end up being affected by that interaction with evil. I mean, whether it's pornography, whether it's um, the envy and jealousy that comes through social media, the covetousness of another person's life and experience, all of that stuff, the slander that happens, the, the, um, the whatever. I mean, there's so much evil that can occur and get at us through those things that we need to be aware of that. If we're going to be exposed to all that stuff, it's very likely we're going to begin to feel the effects of it because it's participation in it. We need to find a way to create a separation, to protect ourselves from those influences and from those uh, exposure to those things. Sin has power when it is covered up. Proverbs 28, 13 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. We're given an outlet, again, in the church, in the body of Christ. We're given an outlet for our sin struggles. The Bible doesn't present the idea that once we've trust Christ, we'll never struggle with sin. <laughs> In fact, 1 John chapter 1 says the opposite. He says, if we claim that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And so we have an opportunity in the church to share, to confess. Now, in order to do that, we have to be willing to be transparent, to open up. Um, and that can be difficult to do. We have pride, right? We have reasons we don't want people to know about our struggles. We think, well, I've been a Christian too long. I shouldn't still have a struggle. Or, you know, I'm a leader. I shouldn't be struggling with anything. And listen, I can understand all of those issues. When I got to college, <clears throat> I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and I came to Christ in a new way. I was a believer, but I wasn't living for him. And I experienced that conviction and that confession and, and uh, began to live a transparent life and share with my now wife, Mary, and, and with some of my buddies who were all in the same boat. We were there to get our lives right and to live for God. And I started to experience that. And when that happens, there's a cleansing and a renewal that takes place and a freedom that you walk into. Listen, if you don't have Christian friends who you can confess your struggles to, who will pray for you, I can just promise you your life is not going to have the power it's meant to have. Unless you're Jesus and you don't struggle with anything. 
Really? I struggle with things. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you do too. We got to participate in the process that God's created for us. This is one of them. Confession to each other. Celebrate Recovery is a safe place we have in our church where you can start out if it's hard. You can get in a confidential group, right? And you can begin to do that. The better you get it and the more your pride kind of drops away and the more you get over the idea that you're supposed to be perfect and other people expect you to be perfect, it gets easier. And you can just share in a life group. You can share with a friend. You can say, yeah, man, I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? That is powerful in your healing. The next thing he addresses in this same verse is also the time we need to be ready to pray. And that is when someone shares their sin struggles with you. It's one thing to share our struggles with somebody else and ask them to pray for us. If we're going to be a church where this kind of healing can take place, we need to be a church full of people that are ready to pray for each other. That know when it's time to step up into that role and pray and intercede and interact. James 16, the second half of the verse, he says this, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. It produces wonderful results. You and I, as we walk with Jesus, yeah, as we confess, as we share our struggles, we gain victory, we get healed, we get better. We begin to walk with him. We overcome certain struggles and we move on to the next. So righteous doesn't mean perfect, but it means people that are walking with God. And if we're going to have a church where people can share their struggles and know they're going to get prayed for, we need to have a church that isn't have that self-righteous, critical, judgmental spirit, right, that we looked at earlier in James, but a church that is gracious, that's filled with mercy and compassion, that when someone shares, we don't always say, I'm going to talk about that all, <laughs> all over the valley, and I'm going to share what's going on in their life. Can you believe what they're struggling with? No. We can be trusted, we can confide, and we can pray a righteous prayer. Those prayers are powerful. It produces wonderful results. Are people able to come to you and ask for prayer? Are you able to participate in their healing with them? There's nothing like that. There's nothing like being able to participate with someone else, getting through a struggle. Do you realize that you are needed by somebody else in this church, in this valley, so they can get well, so they can get better? They can move beyond a struggle that has them in its grip right now. We gotta be willing, we gotta be ready, we gotta be available, right, for God to use us. He goes on to say this in verses 17 and 18. Remember that those who have prayed powerful prayers that we read about in the Bible, they're men and women just like you, just like me. He says Elijah was as human as, as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. When he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. We talk about praying a powerful prayer. Can I just remind you and I, the only thing we're asked to do in order to have a powerful prayer is to be living for God, right? 
to be living for him. That's our one requirement and ask is we're not walking in sin. That's, not, that's gonna interrupt our prayers. It's gonna weaken them. But otherwise, the power in our prayers, I just wanna remind you, is not coming from you. If I pray a prayer, people have said, Pastor, would you pray? We really need some rain. You know, you have a direct line to God. <laughs> I appreciate the confidence there. Appreciate the vote of confidence. No pressure, but you know. But hey, here's the deal. My prayers are no more powerful than yours. If I'm walking in righteousness and I'm living for God, I'm doing what he's called me to do, right? Then yes, I have access to the throne. The only thing that blocks my prayers is that. But beyond that, I just want to remind us that when our prayers are answered, it is not through our power. It's because of the person we're praying to. <laughs> He's the one who has the power to answer the prayer. So James, you're saying Elijah was a regular guy like you. Flesh and blood, put his pants on one leg at a time. Had the same problems, same issues. Read about him if you don't know. He got depressed. He got discouraged. He had ups and downs. He, listen, he was a regular guy. James says, just know that your prayers will be answered too. It's the God that we pray to who has the power. The last thing he addresses in this passage is to pray when you see someone wander away. Verses 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying with? Who are you inviting to church? Who are you inviting to celebrate recovery, to life group, to discipleship group? Who are you working to bring back? It's one of the most powerful roles we can play. And what an encouragement to us to know that those people that have walked away that we love, they're not beyond hope. You and I can participate in helping bring them back and we should be about that work. What does a perfect prayer sound like? Um, I don't know for sure, but Bobby Richardson, who's part of FCA and was a former New York Yankee second baseman years ago, he offered a prayer that sounds pretty good. He said, dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. I need to, perhaps you need to repent of our lack of prayer. Instead of waiting until everything's falling apart to go to God, we need to be going to him on a regular basis. We need to be walking with him. When we pray, we step into the channel of God's power. See, God is doing work around us all the time. When we pray about it, we get to see it. Our awareness of the spiritual realm grows dim. Oftentimes, we get stuck in the, in the physical world thinking that this is all there is. There's a spiritual reality going on around us all the time. God is at work all the time. Are you participating in it? Do you see it? See, when we pray and we see God move, we recognize, we're reminded of the reality of his work. The disciples, remember in Mark 4, you know, they were with Jesus and he just spent a day of ministry. They got out on the lake. They headed across the lake through the night and a storm came up and the storm was so furious that these fishermen who were used to being in boats on the lake, they were fearful for their lives. Jesus is asleep in the boat with his head on a cushion, the Bible says, very comfortable and peacefully asleep. And the disciples, fearful for their lives, they run to him and they shake him, Jesus, wake up, we're gonna die. Don't you care about us? 
And Jesus wakes up and he sees the storm and he says, silence, be still. And the waves stop. And the Bible says the disciples were scared for their lives in the storm. But they were terrified of Jesus after that. Too often, we're scared of the world and not fearful of God. You and I should fear God and not men. The world we live in is temporal. It's limited. The Lion of Judah who we serve, he's all-powerful. Do you really think he can't handle your situation? Do you really think he can't solve what you're going through? Do you really think he can't give you the power to rise up in victory, to remain faithful, to testify to his goodness? Come on. He can do anything. He's already doing it. We just need to see it. And our prayer life helps us with that. God, thank you for what you're doing in our world. You're at work all around us. You're at work in our lives. And God, we fail to see it too often. Our prayers get weak because our faith gets weak. And so God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to step back into a faith, a belief in you. Too often we see that storm and we're fearful of it. But God, remind us, you're the only one we should fear. Help us to walk in faith to trust you and to pray those powerful prayers, to participate in the healing of others, to trust you for our own struggles, to pray, 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 pray. All this we pray in Jesus' name.